0: A show about the labor movement in Canada. I am your host, Jody Tomchishin. On today's show, we have an interview with historian Sal Mercogliano. But first, the news. This past weekend, migrant workers from across this country rallied in front of MP offices to support status for all. The Liberal government has been discussing regularization for some time now, but have delayed implementing a policy. The Migrant Rights Network estimates there are 500,000 undocumented migrants in this country, and they should be made permanent residents. The lack of status for migrant workers makes them particularly vulnerable to exploitation. Migrants often fear speaking up against employees that violate their rights for fear of reprisal, termination, eviction, detention, and deportation. Regularization could help lift most of these migrant workers out of poverty, for more information and how to get involved, visit MigrantRights.ca. Two tenant unions in Toronto, Thorncliffe Park and York Southweston, have coordinated a rent strike against their landlords. In a show of solidarity, CUPE Ontario members voted in favor of donating $5,000 to each tenant union. Rent increases are another factor along with inflation and wage stagnation that are contributing to workers falling behind. CUPE's support acknowledges that these struggles are in fact connected, as many of their members live in these apartments. I will provide links to the strike funds in the show notes and stay tuned for protests that will likely happen in the following months. Unifor is starting a union drive at an Amazon warehouse in Vancouver This was announced at a press conference attended by Chris Smalls, who helped organize a union at an Amazon facility in New York. He is now the president of the Amazon Labor Union, ALU, which is the first Amazon union recognized by America's Labor Relations Board. If this Vancouver warehouse union drive is successful, it will be the first Amazon union in Canada. Lastly, 3,000 and 700 Metro employees, this is the grocery food chain, across the Greater Toronto Area, represented by Unifor, voted 100% in favor of a strike mandate. Let that sink in. 100% of their members (laughs) voted in favor of a strike mandate. Although specifics about the negotiations have not been made public, it is worth highlighting that Metro's profits rose by 26% during the pandemic. And with a unanimous strike vote, it looks like these workers are prepared for a fight. If you have any news you would like to share about your own union or local bargaining updates or strike support, whatever, feel free to email laborintensivepod at gmail.com and I will include it on next week's show. For this week's interview, I sat down with historian Sal Mercogliano. Sal is the department chair of history at Campbell University, North Carolina, where he specializes in maritime history. I first became aware of Sal as he was covering the International Longshore Worker Union, ILWU, negotiations in both America and in Canada. You can find his coverage on his YouTube channel, What Is Going On With shipping? For a brief bit of background, I reached out to Sal after ILWU Canada voted 99% in favor of a strike mandate. They were in legal strike position as of June 24th, and as far as I know, they have not initiated a strike yet. As I record this, which is June 27th. It is also worth pointing out that so far the BCMEA has not initiated a lockout, which they are also in a legal position to do so, if they so choose. Just a few days before we recorded, the negotiating team for the ILWU in America reached a tentative agreement with their employer, the PMA. We talk about what this means both in the American and Canadian context. It is often hard to find union members to come on to talk while they are in the middle of negotiations, and Sal seemed very knowledgeable and even-handed in his coverage of the ongoing labor disputes. He was very gracious to sit down with me and explain to me what is going on with shipping on the west coast. So here is my interview with Sal Mercogliano. I have with me sal mercogliano associate professor and chair of the department of history at campbell university he also produces videos for his youtube channel what is going on with shipping thanks for joining me today oh thanks for having me jody so i i had you on because there has been some ongoing labor news involving the ilwu which is the international longshore workers union uh both in canada and america we are more a specific, like a Canadian show, but I think international news is interesting, especially considering that both of these uh, labor disputes were happening at the same time. The first thing I-, I wanted to get at was there was tons of coverage, especially in the United States, about shipping slowdowns. Leading up to this current agreement, so I guess we should say uh, recently in the American context, the ILWU has reached a tentative agreement with the Pacific Maritime Association. But leading up to that tentative agreement, there was accusations of work stoppages or slowdowns. I guess I, I just want to know like some of the background there, because I couldn't find a ton of information other than, I guess, on social media, both sides were were yelling at each other. But, like, what, what, what is, I guess, evidence of the slowdowns? And what are both sides saying about this?
1: Sure. So, on the US side, so as you mentioned, you had these two entities, the ILWU and the PMA, the Pacific Maritime Association, began this contract negotiation back in May of last year. So, it's been going on for over a year. The contract technically expired at the end of June of last year. So, they've been operating basically under an old expired contract. And it's been going through phases in negotiation. And it really came down to the issue of wages. That's where the, the issue got really contentious here in the last. Uh, the PMA was advocating for basically a wage freeze for half the contract. This is a six-year contract. And they basically wanted to freeze the ILWU where their wages stood. And what had resulted was a series of not strikes. There was an inc- incorrect uh, statements about that. No, the ILW never went on strikes But what the ILWU did was exercise their authority under the contract to basically slow things down in certain areas. So, for example, they got very, very lengthy inspections of equipment were being taken place. And particularly up in the port of Seattle is where we saw this issue come to a head, where there were slowdowns. For example, there wasn't sufficient lashers, those who come on board ships to throw the container lashings either on or off a vessel. So there weren't sufficient lashers to unload or load the vessel. Uh, they would show up with smaller groups than called out for. And, and both sides were doing this. The PMA were not calling out enough workers. And the ILW then was not providing enough workers for who the PMA called out for. And what you got was a social media fight between the two entities where both sides were pointing fingers at each other. And really what it came down to was that each side was trying to get the public on their side. Uh, the PMA was trying to blame the union. The union was trying to blame the PMA. And then in the United States, what you saw was that the acting Secretary of Labor, Julie Sue, was dispatched by the Biden administration to basically tell everybody, okay, the government's going to get involved. And nobody wanted that. So they've come to this now, this tentative agreement on wages.
0: I was curious about the wage freeze uh, like, why Why does the PMA, I mean, obviously, you could say the PMA wants a wage freeze because they don't want to spend more money on wages, uh, because that means more profit for them. But what was their justification for just a, a straight out uh, wage freeze on their contracts?
1: Well, <laughs> they, they came out and basically made the argument like, OK, listen, we're not making the record profits we've been making for the past two years any longer. So therefore, we have to tighten our belts and you, the ILWU, have to share in that burden. Now, that's the hypocritical part of that argument in that they had been giving bonuses and pay raises for the past two years. And you even had some journalists in, in the media saying, well, you know, the, the, the ILWU should have negotiated this sooner. But, you know, it takes two sides to come to an agreement. If the PMA did not want to come to the table to negotiate, you can't make an agreement. And, This is where the PMA really fell short. And and, and I I would argue that this was a terrible argument for them to make. The idea being that not only are you going to wage freeze, but we're going to wage freeze retroactively to the beginning of this contract. And it's going to go out for two years. While at the same time, you're offering bonuses to your employees. Remember, the PMA is made up of uh, the ocean shipping carriers, the terminal operators, very much like the BCME, very similar to what you see uh, in British Columbia, you see on the U.S. West Coast. And and these have experienced record profit. And you could make the argument that the first quarter record, uh, first quarter profits just came in and the shipping lines are still above normal. They're still making profits. And so I, I would argue that that argument fell on flat ears. I mean, it really did, that, that you're giving these massive bonuses, you're giving pay raises, and then you want the ILW not to do it. And the ILWU made the point that, listen, during the Height of COVID, we were at the docks every day. We never slowed down. We never shut down. We had members who died from COVID because they were out, probably more exposed than other people were. And, and I think the ILW pushed that very hard, and maybe they went a little bit too far. And and but each side had their 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 kind of their views on this. Now with the tentative agreement, so they,
0: I guess, like I don't know if we have seen that yet. But like, what are the wages looking like? Uh, I imagine that it's. Uh, they probably didn't get everything they want, but at least it's above
1: a wage freeze, right? <laughs> right. And so, and so one of the things you saw happen is, is almost immediately, and, and and this came out and a lot of journalism, journalists came out with this talking about the fact, well, you know, the ILWU, the average ILWU worker on the West Coast of the U.S. makes $200,000 a year. And, and let me be clear, that's not true. I, I, I mean, yes, there are ILWU workers that make $200,000 a year. There's no doubt about that. But the average does not. And, and then came out this, this statistic that they want a 50% pay raise. Well, if you look at the way the agreement is written right now, they're looking at in the first year getting about a $4.62 raise on average across their workers for the first year. Then it goes up about $3.50 an hour year to year after that. And so it's 52% over the course of the entire six-year contract. But again, it's how they were spinning that. And, and again, the PMA was basically saying three-year wage freeze. We don't want to give you anything from 2022 until 2025. And and that wasn't going to work either because of inflation and all the other elements working there. Because remember, the what we're talking about on the U.S. is all 29 ports from San Diego up to Tacoma are in that. And if you're a worker in downtown L.A. and Long Beach, that's a high standard of living you're, you're, you're in at that time. And so that wasn't going to work. But now we're getting details about it. But like you mentioned, and important to mention here, this is a tentative agreement and now has to go to all the 29 ports to be voted on because there are provisions in each of those contracts that are a little bit different based on the nature of the ports.
0: I imagine too, it's usually once you get a tentative agreement, the the rank and file are usually going to sign on to it. Although there has been cases where that hasn't happened, but...
1: Oh well, there's gonna be some. There's gonna be some locals that aren't gonna like it, no matter what. Oakland's never gonna like it. I, I I pick the locals right now. They're gonna be the ones that are gonna choose against this. And and there's gonna be some, but I think in the large measure, you're gonna see this agreement come in. You know, there was a lot of sore points in this agreement that they had to overcome. So, for example, on the Canadian side right now, the big issue is automation. That was an issue that had to be dealt with on the west coast of the U.S. And it's the one, I think, the sticking point right now up in British Columbia with the ILWU up there.
0: I, I want to ask you more of a technical question because we keep talking about, for example, you know, the the Pacific Maritime Association and the British Columbia equivalent. I guess, how does the employment work? I'm, I'm someone who's not invested in longshoremen <laughs> or, or uh, you know, to see how they do their job. So how do... How how does this work? Like, who are these associations and how do they become the employee or employers such that they're hiring uh, ILWU workers? Like, how does that interaction
1: work? Well, I I could speak largely from the U.S. side because that's where I'm I'm more of an expert on than than on the Canadian side. So in the U.S. back in 1934, you had this massive strike that happened on the west coast of the United States and the west coast of the U.S., very much like the east coast of the United States and, and Canada is a bit different in that there are very few ports on the West Coast. They're really isolated. And, and so you have these kind of clumps of ports that exist. And, and what that did was the, the unions really came together as a labor body in the 1930s. We really saw where organized labor came together and created that. In many ways, the, the, the Pacific Maritime Association and the British Columbia equivalent came out as a result of that. Okay, we're going to counter this, this, this labor Conglomerate that now has unified workers in each of the ports along the entire coast of these countries. And if you look at the Pacific Maritime Association, for example, it's made up of the big ocean carriers. So you've got MSC, Mediterranean Shipping, you've got Hop Hog, you've got local US shipping, Matson and Pasha. You have terminal operators, you have the crane operators, you have a whole batch of entities that come together. And it was seen as a counterweight to labor. And so you basically have the ports versus those who work in the ports. And it's even more than that now because the ports are also being represented by the entities that ship cargo in and out of them. So a lot of freight forwarders, a lot of of, of these organizations come in. Ironically, the one who has almost nothing to say about it is the ports themselves, like the Port of Los Angeles, the Port of Long Beach. They operate as basically as landlords. They, They will lease out the land to terminal operators. So in the United States, we saw a lot of the Port of L.A. director getting on and talking about this labor agreement. He has nothing to do with the labor agreement at all. He's just an observer of it. Uh, And and what was really amazing is how quiet the ILWU and the PMA were officially. They got unofficial. They They were flying things on social media, particularly there toward the end where they were issuing these statements at each other. But you couldn't get really any of the elected officials from either organization out there. And so it's really kind of two big behemoths that you deal with. you got organized labor on one side, and then you have all the facets of the port on the other side. And what happens is when ships come in to, to ports, it is on the, in, on the U.S. side, it's the Pacific Maritime Association that will call out working gangs. That will get the ILWU to provide those working gangs. Basically, the PMA doesn't get into the details about how the labor shows up. That's the ILWU. That's their bailiwick. They're in charge of training them, making sure they're available. They're just paid to bring out the group. So what we saw in Seattle, for example, was the PMA were calling out, Okay, we're going to call out one work gang to work this ship. And they would work one crane on this one ship and they would do the you know, removal of the containers, loading them onto the bomb carts and moving them around the terminal. Well, they weren't moving the containers fast enough because there wasn't enough workers or they were slowing down. And at a certain point, the PMA had a right to cancel the work gang. If they don't get work, I think within three hours by about 10 o'clock in the morning, they can sit there and say, OK, we're canceling this. We'll pay you for the three hours, but we're not paying you for the whole day. And so you get this weird kind of relationship between the two. And you actually have a scenario where foreign companies were determining the wages for American workers, which was really this, the point that got really sticky that started coming out. And it's one of the reasons why you heard some of the shipping companies tell the Pacific Maritime Association, end this now. This is going to get bad. We don't want the government involved, and we're going to get a bad name for ourselves. So go ahead and come up with an agreement.
0: I guess that gets to the fact that uh, Julie Sue, the uh, acting secretary of labor, was getting involved in this. What like I guess what was the government's position? Like, what did they think Julie Sue was going to do? Was it like merely her presence there was going to spook them enough to do something? Or did she actually have some kind of power or ability to do anything here?
1: Well, a couple of things. So if you read the joint statement by the ILWU and the PMA, they basically laud. Julie Su. I mean, she just comes out like like she's the one who did this. You know, she she parted the Red Sea and got us back together again. And what's really interesting is if you look at her confirmation was it was was hitting a lot of roadblocks. Uh, She'd come from being secretary of labor in California. The Republicans in the U.S. Congress were saying she's too close to labor. She goes out there. And from what I've been able to hear from people in the PMA and the IOWU is they were concerned for two things. Number one, she's going to come out on the side of ILWU. She's a huge labor person. She's going to come out on their side. The Biden administration has already said that. President Biden has come out to the West Coast and basically challenged to punch the container liners in the face at one point. you know, he So he didn't come out <laughs> as a fan of the big ocean carriers, which the PMA is made up of. And Julie Su, I would argue, didn't I hate to be really mean about this, but I don't think she did anything beyond the fact that her presence was the scary thing. Because what her presence meant was that the government was going to come in and they were going to legislate this and they were going to make the decision. And you have the fear of something like a Taft-Hartley imposition, which was done back in 2002, where the government said, you're all going back to work and we're we're going to resolve this. We will mediate this out and come up with a resolution. And nobody wanted that. So I think, that it was the threat of large scale government interference and mediation that did that you know i heard specifically that there was a sh- one shipping firm in particular mediterranean shipping company did not want this they did not want the government involved they were they they wanted to get their routes figured out they were understanding that listen we need to get this hammered out because we're losing business right now because remember too joe you got a couple of issues going on behind the scenes you've got low water on the panama canal so that alternative route Of moving containers from the instead of going into the west coast of the united states to the east coast of the united states was getting more difficult it was going to be harder to do and rates were still high going across the atlantic and you're talking about pushing more traffic going through the suez canal and the atlantic route and so everybody wanted this resolved and i think it was just the waking up that okay the government's going to get involved this is not going to be a clean issue let's get it resolved and i think they wanted to make it sound like. We appreciate the Biden administration. So you had that very lauding uh, message come out from the two.
0: Yeah, I was wondering as well, because they got a lot of flack, or at least the Biden administration got a lot of flack for forcing the end of the the railway uh, strike. So like I wonder if like this was a way for them as well to like, uh, you know, hang up a few wins on their belt uh, as well. That and like they didn't want a repeat of the, the COVID delays, I think.
1: No, you know, and my, my point was I, I I was talking to somebody else about this, and they sat there and said, Well, you know, if you're if you're the Biden administration, you're gonna take a victory lap on this. Julie Sue, you know, it looks great. I was like, Yeah, I said you just gotta remember this has been going on for over a year during the Biden administration. It literally got to this point under their watch. So they they basically waited until it was teetering over the edge to run in and pull them back. And and that's okay, you can use that tactic. But it's a bad tactic to use because if it goes over the edge, then you're responsible for it. We're seeing it right now with uh, uh, UPS in the United States, with the UPS, uh, uh, United Parcel Service, maybe going on strike with their union. Because they had a very similar vote to what the ILWU in Canada had.
0: I now want to move uh, more to the Canadian ILWU. Uh, I know you're based out of America, but you, you clearly follow this a lot more than I do. For those who don't know, I mentioned this on the show last week, which was that the ILWU in Canada voted 99% in favor of a strike. This puts them in legal strike position for June 24th. Of course, this doesn't mean that they will go on strike if they reach a tentative agreement uh, before then. They won't go on strike. They might even just decide not to go on strike then and choose to go on strike when it's more convenient for them for whatever reason. But uh, I am... So, like, they, they were having similar concerns in terms of wages was there do you know if there was a wage freeze offered to them as well or is there a different issue going on with wages between the bc maritime employer association and the canadian ilwu you have the,
1: you have very similar issues i mean you have wages and like i said the biggest issue that's really right now is the issue of automation. And that's that's a sore point because one of the issues you have, I mean, obviously on the British Columbia side, you're looking at two big ports, you're looking at Vancouver, you're lo- looking at Prince Rupert, Rupert, so I mean, two big ports. We saw how important West Coast Canadian ports were when the Fraser River happened, and all of a sudden you got cut off, and grain and nothing could move across the Canadian uh, uh, length of the country. I mean, that was absolutely traumatic. I mean, when you looked at the vessels that piled up outside. Of Vancouver. I mean, that, w- that was an amazing thing to, to see. And in the same way, you're, you're looking at these ports being this the same issue. You're talking about wages, which are really important. But the automation one, I think, is really the big one. We just saw come out a report uh, about this, about the loss of jobs potentially with automation. And understand, there's a lot of elements of port automation that's really important to understand. If you look at port automation, you look at effectiveness of ports, what you're talking about is the ability to move cargo through the ports, something called throughput. You want to be able to get the containers and cargo off the vessel and out the port. And a lot of ports, U.S., Canadian, a lot of other places around the world are not very efficient at that. And that's where this automation issue comes in. A lot of people tend to think the automation issue is like you'll see remote cranes and you won't see people working in the the ports anymore. But a lot of this automation deals with data and the ability for truck drivers and rail to come in and efficiently move. And what the unions want, what the ILW wants, is to make sure that if you're going to automate the ports, we're not going to lose membership, which means that down the road, your membership may decline, but you're not firing people. They're basically phasing out as their retirements kick in. And this is the sore point I think right now is to make sure. It's a little bit more severe, I would argue, on the Canadian side because of the fewer ports there are on the British Columbia side. And because of the massive amount of cargo that goes through British Columbia ports, uh, this has a big impact because you can really see it impact in certain ports. Obviously, in Vancouver is one of the big ones where you would see it hit more than anything else. The U.S. ports also tackle that issue of automation, but it's different in different ports.
0: I guess like in terms of efficiency, we're, I guess it's efficiency in terms of like how much uh, you know, quicker these things can be processed such that you can get more profit for the shorter time it takes to unload
1: these shipping crates, right? Like, well, if you looked at like, like the height of the global supply chain crisis back in 2021 when we had 109 vessels off LA and Long Beach, for example, you would have truck drivers coming into the terminals in L.A. and Long Beach. And you now typical of those truck drivers during normal times could make two to three runs a day to the port. You know, they would show up. They would literally show a piece of paper and they would go get their containers. You know, let me go get your container for you and we'll, we'll load it on the back of your truck and off you go. And during the height of the supply chain, you were lucky to get one run a day in there because the yards were so packed. And and believe it or not, a lot of things in, in ports are done in a way that is cutting edge 1970s technology. I mean, there's still fax machines. I mean, mean, it's, it's really bad that you still have paper in some cases and it, it doesn't make for a very smooth flow of, of, of cargo. You know, when I order, I just ordered something the other day and I'm tracking it right now, you know, as this package is, is packaged in Madison, Wisconsin until it arrives at my doorstep in North Carolina For containers, it's a lot different. It's like, okay, I think it's on this ship. And now it's in the port. I'm not sure where the container is because we don't have that kind of tracking data like we do. And and you literally lose them for a while. And, And that's what we start talking about with automation and throughput. And unfortunately, a lot of unions see automation as, you know, this is the thing that's going to kill us. You know, it's 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 the thing that that has killed bank tellers and toll and toll toll booth collectors, you know, it's it's the easy pass. It's going to get rid of it's going to get rid of us. And so there's a big fight against that. And I, I think you're really seeing that on the Canadian West Coast.
0: I've read some stuff about like the the initial automation that occurred earlier, uh, I I don't know exactly when the timeline is, but like when containerization really became a thing. Did we see uh, like a similar decline in labor after containerization or is is like largely like there's like some element of fear or like does this automation process that they have previously experienced also cut jobs or, or hurt them in the long term?
1: Oh, if you go back to the creation of containers, I mean, containers come out, Malcolm McLean, 1956 comes out with the, the idea of the container and it, it, it was a dead idea. Nobody wanted it because you were going to take longshoremen and, and, and workers out. You know, it was a huge infrastructure investment because you had to buy these cranes and these containers and these trailers and these chassis. Nobody wanted. Believe it or not, the thing that proved it as a, an efficient model was the Vietnam War, was the U.S. found itself in a position where it couldn't get cargo into Vietnam. And, and, and it was uh, Malcolm McClain and Sealand sold that concept. And all of a sudden you see it take off. And it's very much the same thing. Plus, we use containers a lot differently today than they were originally envisioned. So, you know, if you have a container come over from the Far East and it's loaded with cell phones, for example, well, that container doesn't need to go to a local store. That The material in that container has to be unpacked. It has to be unpacked and then redistributed into containers that are going to local stores and shops, which means that most shipping containers go maybe 100 200 miles from the port to some warehouse somewhere to be unstuffed and then repacked into trailers and other containers for shipment so we've really changed the way we move goods in many ways it's not the it's not the old idea that i'm going to pack up my container seal it and it's not going to be opened again till it arrives at a store you know in Saskatchewan you know that that's not the way it works and and so that, that changes the material handling and plus it changes the tracking data. This is why automation becomes so important because lots of times we were shipping containers across and you may have one or two things in them. You know, I, I, I need to ship over a couch. Well, I, you know, okay, I'm just going to pack my couch in there and ship it over. But when container rates get expensive, I can pack 50 other things in that container. I can, I, all I need is an eighth of the container. Let me use the other seven eighths to package stuff. So you have these freight brokers that pack containers so that you get even cheaper transportation costs. And then you got to be able to track that. And that's the big problem is is the literally the visibility. Containers you don't know what's in a container. Once you seal it, it looks like every other container. And 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 you know, once it gets closed, following it it becomes very difficult.
0: I what is the concern from the union side of it in terms of having that automized, so that it or, so in some sense they're more easier to track or keep
1: track of? Well, what they're worried about is losing the people that are doing that job right now and and literally doing it physically. And because there's a lot of automation. So, for example, one of the the systems that's used in container yards is you take the containers off the vessels. They have to go through a screening process and then they're stacked. They're stacked into these big, big kind of piles, almost like a Tetris, you know. Pile. And then when somebody comes in to get their container, they will make an appointment, they'll, they'll book a, a time to come in, and someone has got to go get that container and get it prepped to go offloaded there. And a lot of that is physical labor. It's people driving and doing all that, that, that sort. If you can do that by computer, if I got an app on my phone that tells me I, I'm going to book my, my appointment, I'm going to come in. You know, here's my paperwork, here's my clearance data, you know, taxes are paid, tariffs are paid, I've cleared customs and all the other entry procedures, that removes people from the equation. And it makes it efficient, it makes it much more productive. And at the same time, you start seeing the, the diminishing, uh, you diminish the number of people who have to be involved. And that's where the unions get very concerned about that. It also raises some some security issues, some terrorist issues invisibility of these containers and making sure they're being tracked properly. You know, one of the things that containerization did is eliminated the kind of sticky fingers of stevedores and laborers stealing things. Well, now people don't steal things out of containers. They just steal containers. Cuz if I can show up with false data and I can get a full container load of cell phones, I'm you know, I'm rich. I'm good to go. I've 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 stolen something better than stealing a single cell phone.
0: Yeah, I guess I wonder, like, how do how do they make the contract to protect against automation in that sense? Like, what what specifically would they be looking for? I guess you had mentioned something like, uh, you know, having it so that the the retire or the people will stay on board, but they will eventually uh, phase out after retiring. But like, how can you get that like into the contract to prevent these companies from automating?
1: So the issue that they wind up is is this: so the retirement money that's being paid to the retirees comes out of the salaries of those working. And so obviously, if your base of workers is declining, that means they have to contribute more for the retirees. And, and that's where they get into that concern. And, and so a lot of times, one of the things they look for is for either the PMA or, or the British, uh, British Columbia to provide money to supplement that, you know, can we get some money that so that it's not an onus on our few or fewer remaining Employees to do it. You know, you retire when you're 60, 65 as a longshoreman. You know, you're going to live to be 76, 80 years old. I need to make sure that there's enough money to pay those retirees from a smaller, shrinking base. And so lots of times they want to do a phased approach. So make sure that we, we see our reduction over. One of the things we saw that happen with the supply chain is okay, we got a lot more traffic coming into the West Coast to the US and Canada. We need more workers. Which sounds great if you're the union. Well, great, it's time. Let's get more union workers. It's like, no, I don't want union workers. I don't want to bring more union workers on. Because if I bring these guys and women into the union, I got to pay for them later on. And I don't need that. And so it's really hard to come in as a full union worker. So you have this weird provision called casuals, which work the jobs, but they don't get the benefits. And so, you know, how long are you going to do that? They're kind of like part-time employees but they don't get the full benefits. And so you've got to kind of phase them in. So it becomes a very difficult issue because you want to work, you want to make sure your retirees are taken care of because that's what attracts the labor. now. It's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get this when I retire at the end of this, this is very attractive for me. I want this retirement. But if you, if you see the retirees kind of losing their benefits year after year after year, it's hard to get people to do that job then.
0: You caught my ear with with the casual stuff. So how how does that work? Because don't these shipping companies have to go through the union, or can they just grab anyone? I guess I guess maybe they would go to the union because that's
1: where maybe the skill set is. No, the the unions would usually deal with the casual. So there would be lists, long lines to get you know you sign up sheets to become you know a member of the union, and and. So one of the things you would do is you'd go to training schools, you'd go to these vocational technical training, and then they would bring you on as, as kind of surge labor, you know, okay, we need more labor. We're, 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 we're way above where we need to be. And so you'd come on, but you wouldn't get the full benefits of the lay of the union, you know, not the full pay, but then you'd work a set period of time and then you'd be considered for application into the union. You've done this amount of time. And so, and, and this was, this was the issue that was going on on the west coast of the U.S. and Canada, in that lots of times during the height of COVID, you would hear some arguments between the unions and and the and the labor and and, and the the associations. You know, wow, you know, we can't move our cargo because the labor is not moving fast. Well, labor doesn't want to bring a lot of people on because then they're they have to be responsible for them. And at the same time, the PMA or the British Columbia didn't want to bring on more gangs on because they got to pay more for them. They didn't want to pay the overtime. So they wanted to move this cargo during normal, normal time hours, because there's a limited pool of labor you can bring in. If you bring that labor in for multiple shifts, you're paying overtime, you're paying twice as much, three times as much. And so both sides really had a benefit had to basically juggle this. And and this is where you get a lot of people who are outside this look at this and they 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 curse the association, they curse the unions, they don't like them, you know, because oh, it's union workers. They they they, they you know, they're just you know they're just milking money at the time. But again, they're looking at their long-term benefits for their members who have worked for 20, 30 years already. So it, it's a tough balancing act that they have to play
0: i'm wondering too like is is it from the la- uh the labor union's perspective that like you don't want these more casual members to be signed up because they might not last that long in order to like say pay into like the retirement funds and stuff like this or like what is the reason for keeping directly like these casual workers and, and not wanting them to sign up for for the union or at least have them go through a process
1: it, it, it's it's the fear that casuals become the norm that, you know, it's part time employees and, you know, employees without benefits become the norm and you start phasing out the union workers and, and there'll be less and less of them. And and that's a concern. It's a, it's, a, it's a fear they have. And you see that in lots of industries. It's not just in the labor industries, I could say from academia where I work as a university, you can see that where you bring in part-time professors to teach, you know, surge classes because, well, then we don't need those full-time professors. We can do it with this. It's the same thing in union in some ways. You see that same element coming in. Now you can make the argument, well, this is competitive. This is free market. This is exactly what we want to see. We want to see this competitive nature where, hey, I want to bring in these guys that don't have this. But then you got to think about it. Okay, well, then you're paying less for these workers. They're not going to have benefits. How do you live in, you know, large urban areas where the, the standard of living is so high? You know, how, how do you survive in an environment where the cost of living is more than the base wage is for these people? And then you're churning through your workforce, and you find it so that you can't keep a steady pool you know one of the arguments the unions will make continually is like we were showing up every day we were here every day there was no shortage we handled it and and we kept it moving and that's because we have a dedicated labor pool they did not want to lose their jobs cuz they're good paying jobs they did not want to go get a job at a big box store loading boxes cuz they're not going to make that same benefits they're going to do
0: i guess maybe like i feel like i'm missing something here so is it like so do the like PMA, do they like hire the casuals
1: separately from or like or is, is it the labor union? The unions hire the casuals. So basically what the PMA does, it sets the labor goal. OK, we need this many work gangs to work this. And if, if the IOW keeps coming up short all the time, you know, it's like, OK, we got 10 ships. We need, you know, three gangs per ship. We need 30 gangs and if you're only showing up with 22 or 20 it's like okay you got to do something it's like we you know you're 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 creating this logjam you're creating this 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 problem that's magnifying because we got ships you know anchoring off port now so you are got to start supplementing them and that's where you start bringing the casuals in and so they would start bringing those casuals in but then the unions always feared like okay these casuals become the norm now and 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 you know now we got to go ahead and start Paying more for them, or we got to bring them into the union. And again, you don't want to bring them into the union because now, okay, now I'm running 30 gangs instead of 22 gangs, but then all of a sudden the ships disappear because the economy turns down. And now I got 30 gangs of union members and I can't pay them. And they're going to get ill because guess what? My job as union president is based on voting. I'm going to get voted out. And then when the labor negotiation comes in, it gets really bad. And, and, that, and that's where the unions find a very delicate line between union membership and these casuals.
0: Thanks. No, that, that, Now it's starting to make sense to me. <laughs> like there was parts of it just like, it seemed like what, to what advantage uh, would they want these casual workers? And I just couldn't, like, uh, couldn't fully figure that out. Uh, I do want to say like, uh, so with the tentative agreement in the United States and with the Canada ILWU having the strike vote, is, is I guess, like the, the strength diminished considering that America is also or is not going to go on strike or likely isn't going to go on strike anytime soon? Will that diminish the sort of like power that, that Canada has in closing just those few ports compared to the rest?
1: I, I think, number one, I, I think the Canada strike vote had a big impact actually in the U.S. I really do. I, I think that was an issue that really told everybody that and you know that number is 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 a really ridiculous number 99 point i think it's like four something percent it's like it's a crazy number until you as you said understand okay that's the authorization to strike that's not the vote to strike because the vote to strike is much different but that gives the union the ability to do it i think that told the pma in the united states holy cow if the canadians are talking about that this is this is just going to create a a kind of a momentum and, I, in, and in the same way, I think the tentative agreement in the U.S. now creates momentum in Canada to come up with a tentative agreement, to sit there and go, okay, now the U.S. just came up with that agreement. Let's see what we can do now. Let's get our negotiation together and let's see what we can hammer out. Because the fear is if, if you have a strike on British Columbia side, well, then those, that cargo is going to go into Seattle and Tacoma and it's just going to come across you know the border that way. And again, that works in some areas, not in other areas. Obviously, the grain and and a lot of bulk shipment has got to come out through the Canadian system. It's the only way it's going to come out is is through there. But I think there's more of an incentive now. Okay, let's come out with that agreement in place. And I'm, I'm not going to be surprised to see the Canadian government take a very proactive element, too, because they may see what the Biden administration did and sit there and say, okay, this, you know, if we have to intervene, we're going to intervene. But I I think there is a momentum now to get this discussion between the two. But as as you also mentioned, too, we don't have an agreement in place yet until the 29 locals come up and sign this deal and put it in place. We're all set on the West Coast of the United States, because right now it's got to go in. And I know there's going to be a lot of debate and voicing of concern about what that agreement entails.
0: Yeah, I guess it's we're just gonna have to wait and see. <laughs> I, by the time this episode comes out, I don't know. We're gonna see whether or not uh, they actually end up going on the strike or, or not.
1: Uh, I, I listen. I never, I never pull out the crystal ball when it comes to labor, labor, because and, and, especially with shipping, it's like you know. I joke. I had somebody send me a note. It's like, well, that's over now. I guess it will be quiet for a while. It's like, no, 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 no. Give it a give it a day. Something else is gonna happen because this this is no by no means. Over And again, I, I think especially for the ILWU in Canada, listen, the West Coast, British Columbia is becoming much more important. Go into the idea, too, with the railways linking together. You've got the Canadian Northern, Canadian Pacific railways linking up with Kansas City all the way down to Mexico. You know, that changes the equation quite a bit right now. And so entry ports into Canada on the British Columbia side are really attractive. And, and again, you know, especially when we start talking about grain, you know, we still have Ukraine, we still got that war going on. We still got food issues. We're talking about low water right now on the Rhine river. We're talking about low water on the piranha down in South America, which makes Canadian grain much more essential for getting out. And again, I never underestimate the power that they have here to move this cargo. And, you know, one of the things that's uh, really interesting is, is, is how much Canada, in terms of economics, military, social, politically, are looking to the West Coast a lot more than they ever did to the East Coast now. So I, I think British Columbia plays a much bigger role for Canada than ever before. And you're talking about developing new ports, even more ports, you know, growing these, these railways and port infrastructure. I think that is the gateway for Canada out into this Pacific marketplace.
0: Well, thank you very much for uh, talking with me. I should say as well, I really love your YouTube channel. I, I wasn't expecting uh, you know a channel solely dedicated to shipping, but it's really well done and it's very informative. So again, thank you for coming up.
1: Joey, I appreciate it and everything. I I try to make, you know, I try to make global shipping accessible to everybody. You don't have to be, you know, a licensed merchant mariner or someone who lives by the coast to understand what I'm trying to explain. It's it's how shipping impacts everyone. I'm in central North Carolina and it doesn't matter if you're in Manitoba. I'm telling you, global shipping impacts you every day, whether you like it or not. And, And I try to put that in the context for everybody.
0: Well, uh, thanks again. I recommend everyone should go check out uh, Sal's YouTube channel. Of course, I'll link it uh, and all that fun stuff. But uh, thanks, thanks again for tuning in. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Sal Mercogliano. His YouTube channel has been blowing up since we talked about a week ago, as he's been making media appearances regarding the Titan sub incident. We recorded this before all that happened, but if you're interested in all Titan-related news, uh, go check out his excellent YouTube channel, What's Going On With Shipping. He makes covering shipping fun and exciting, but he's also super informative. You can also follow him on Twitter at mercoglianos. That's at M-E-R-C-O-G-L-I-A-N-O-S. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash If you become a member, you can have access to the patron-only podcast that I do with Eric Wickham called Bad Books by Bad People, which we will be releasing monthly. You might know Eric from being a co-host of another great Harbinger Media show, Big Shiny Takes. You should be listening to them if you are not aware of them yet. This weekend, we will be releasing Chapter 7 of our review of Shakedown by Ezra Levant. I think we will have one more episode after that, and then we should be done with that book and moving on to another. So if that interests you, go check it out. And thank you for listening. I will see you next week. This podcast is part of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community of progressive podcasts. Visit their website at harbingermedianetwork.com to listen to other incredible left-leaning podcasts. Thanks as well to Dan Van Winden, who produced the music for this podcast. If you want to follow Labor Intensive on social media, find links to our social media accounts in the show notes of this episode.